Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. the podcast. This is Craig Cottle, Director of Nature Blind School. I've mentioned it several times, but I make it a habit anymore when I go far, when I leave Kentucky primarily to go teach classes, I'll typically leave a little bit early because I know what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to run across something related to history and it's going to intrigue me. And usually I'll just blow on by it. But in the last couple of years, I've gotten a habit of leaving early enough that when I see it, I'll usually stop and try to dig into it. There's so much history in the United States of America. Well, there's history everywhere in the world, but there's so much history that I don't know. And I'm an amateur historian at best. Yeah, at best, I would say that. But I did that recently when I went for a trip. I was teaching tracking down in West Virginia with the LT Wright crew, and I stopped and looked at Point Pleasant, which I'd read considerable amounts about related to Simon Kenton. The recent dig, which led to this podcast, I taught a class down at Georgia Bushcraft. Uh, We taught a class called Beyond the Basics. That was their title. It's basically what we call nature immersion at Nature Reliance School, which is just a, a deep dig into understanding nature. And from a bushcraft and survival perspective, how you can utilize good tree identification, good plant identification to benefit you to be a good steward of the land, to, to act upon it, and to definitely just be a part of the part of nature that helps promote it so that it helps promote you. Anyway, not really important to this discussion, but down near Georgia Pushcraft, there was a river called the Oconee River. Never heard of that river. Uh, I'm not from that area. Hadn't been. I've not spent that much time that far south. Actually, down mid Georgia and below. I, for example, I've only been to Florida one time. Flew in, made a b- bunch of videos for a company, and then I left. So the thing that uh, always gets me interested are what are obviously Native American names for areas or rivers or creeks or what have you. And so I, I pulled over at a rest stop when I saw a sign for the Coney River and got to digging into it a little bit and learned a lot about it. It was interesting. It was good information. And it led to the study of a river named the Oklahoma River. And forgive me, I'm butchering the name. I 
I'm reading, and this is a problem with me. I do a lot of reading, and I don't have an opportunity to go to a you know historical class and study with somebody who can tell me how to pronounce these names. But nevertheless, that led to an understanding of the Appalachian Native American tribe, which I, unfortunately, had never heard of. And I got to digging into what we we call the area that extends basically from a little bit into Georgia, nearly all the way to Maine, Appalachia, right? A lot of people think it's just Kentucky, uh, West Virginia, Virginia, and that small section where it's impoverished and they speak very a very specific dialect. Specifically, they'll say words like uh, Appalachia rather than Appalachia and things of that nature. Anyway, what I would call good old country or good old mountain folk, right? I didn't realize that the word Appalachia came from a very specific Native American tribe that headquartered themselves primarily in Florida, but did a lot of trading all the way up into Georgia, Alabama, and even into the Carolinas, what we now call the Carolinas. So I found several resources for them, and I thought I'd share some of that information here because a lot of people have been on me about trying to dig into another piece of history. Well, here it is, you all. Finally got it for you. I'll definitely include some of the links that I've utilized for this article, or at least for this podcast, in the description below. I'll make sure that I pass those on to Tracy because Tracy's the one that gets all that stuff entered in, and I appreciate him doing that. Here's what we know, and and I'll just try to lay out several of these these pieces of data because I find it really intriguing. The Appalachee, not Appalachian, Appalachee tribe, and I hope I'm saying that right, was basically a Southeast Indian tribe that was located in Florida. There were many tribes that lived in Florida, not just them, and, and this was a very densely populated area that lived in the Florida panhandle. Think about it. Think about the climate down there and how interesting or maybe even less hard it would have been to live in an area due to climate issues or weather issues specifically. A little bit more of a moderate if not warm climate so you had to deal with bugs and stuff of that nature but you didn't have to deal with hypothermia as bad as you might in areas like where I'm from in Kentucky. At the time that the Spanish conquistadors resided or came into Florida, this Appalachian tribe existed right between the Osceola River and the Oklahoma River that I mentioned earlier. They occupied a site that was called the Velda Mound. Now think about this. There's all kinds of mound builders throughout American Native American history, and this is another one of those that's that far south. These mounds were part of a basically a prehistoric Indian tribe tied to the Mississippian Indian culture. Not necessarily Mississippi as we understand at the state. Again, Mississippi is the name of a Native American culture, so keep that in mind as we move forward with anything we discuss along these lines. The Appalachians suffered just like a lot of Native American tribes did. After their initial contact with the Spanish that came in, they fell victim to a lot of the diseases that came from Europe. They had never experienced those, and so they lost a considerable amount of their numbers. And they... they went to war a lot with various Native American tribes in that region and beyond. So their population was nearly uh, wiped out even shortly after the Spanish conquistadors came through. And so they did like a lot of Native American tribes did. They just dispersed or they blended in with other tribes and were either adopted or blend, just simply blended in with them 
and became part of a culture that was very different from the Appalachian. So here's where that name came about. So this particular Native American tribe had a reputation as being fiercely warrior-like. And when the Spanish conquistadors who came in southern Florida came in, and they were talking to other Native American tribes, they were looking for certain resources and some riches that basically the Spanish wanted. The south, the more southern tribes said, hey, you'll find that up in the Appalachian, which is a derivative of Appalachian part of the world. And so the conquistadors started going that direction. When the Spanish conquistadors wrote about this and put it in some of their writing, this is in the 1500s, somewhere around early 1500s, they wrote as Appalachian. And so we continued that on and basically used the term Appalachian, spelled with an I-E-N, where they spelled it with an E-N, and it has been carried into the day. So that group of Spaniards traveled up close to where the Appalachian were located, but they didn't quite make it. And then more Spanish explorers came in, particularly DeSoto that you might have heard from in history class back when you were in middle school. About 11 years later, after this initial contact, they reached the main town of the Appalachian Native Americans, and it was located in what is modern-day Tallahassee, Florida, somewhere in that vicinity. So the Spanish, who basically adapted and adopted this Native American name to Appalachian and applied that to the whole coastal region there that bordered Appalachian Bay, as well as to the tribe that lived in it. Now, modern-day archaeologists and historians have determined that the Appalachian had distinct links to, well, they had family trade links, they had family links by blood, much farther north, leading all the way up into Cherokee land and Catawba, which were other tribes that are up near closer to us as far as on the earth. Uh, they're more in the the Carolinas and Virginia type area, the Cherokee and Catawba. However, uh, these people, the Appalachian, had distinct relationships with people that far north. Now, this next section that I wanted to discuss is where we start really digging into some history, and, and I've kind of tapped into a little bit of it already, but it starts bringing a lot of it together. So after Columbus discovered the New World, it, you know, it really didn't take much time for Spain to begin their expansion into the, what we call the Caribbean, Mexico, and into the Florida Panhandle. Now, prior to the Spanish attacking the Appalachian, the Spanish had already changed a lot of the political and, and even economic landscape that had been in place for centuries. I mean, for centuries, these people had been living there a certain way, and the Spanish had determined they were going to bring some sort of civilization to them, which is unfortunate. Cortez defeated the Aztecs, and Pizarro had defeated the Incas. Think about that, the Aztecs and the Incas, which were incredibly powerful people groups. And because they were so powerful, the Spanish thought, well, we'll just walk into Florida, what is now called Florida, and just destroy the Southeast Native American tribes and just take whatever gold and other resources that we could find. What came about was that there was this fellow named Nar Narvaez, and I'll spell this one, N-A-R-V-A-E-Z, Panfilio de Narvaez, in 1528, where he met and made contact with the Appalachians again and believed that the area that he was located in at that time, which he was wrong, was their capital. His mistake was being overconfident. So he went to war against them and he set up shop in there, what he thought was their capital, 
the Native Americans, the Appalachians, started using basically what we would call guerrilla tactics now in hit-and-run ambushes, basically ran them out of the country. A lot of them went to the coast, and they built some makeshift rafts to try to get away from them, get out into the ocean. A lot of them drowned in the process. Talking of the Spanish now, many more of the Spanish died in the warfare aspect of it, and they left, and a few survivors made it to Galveston Island off the coast and was able to then hop back into Georgia and start exploring there and ignore the Appalachian Florida. They had basically been run out of Florida. Now, the issue is that with this knowledge taken back to home base, when DeSoto came in, he came back in much more prepared, much more understanding of their tactics, and basically destroyed them. I mean, he absolutely destroyed them. He came in, set up shop, very aggressively, he took over there, the town of Anika, where he spent basically the winter, basically came in, kicked their butt, set up shop in their home, and then hung out there just as a big cocky Spanish conquistador, right? The thing that the Apalachee added to this aggressiveness is that they determined that one of the better things they could do, because it was hard for them to defeat these warriors on horses, is just target the horses. So they started killing horses. And it put man-to-man on the ground, and on man-to-man on the ground, the Native Americans, the Appalachians, were just as formidable. And so there were considerable victories made by the Appalachians. But again, because of all the diseases that were brought in by DeSoto, their numbers just quickly became very difficult to manage and maintain. Here's where another layer of just fascinating information for me came about. So around 1600, Spanish Franciscan priests came in and started developing these missions among the Appalachians. So there was this synchronous blend of Catholicism along with some of the ways the Appalachia developed as a religion. And so there was just, it was a lot like different areas of the world where Christianity was introduced, but a lot of the native methodology and religion and shamanism was included and so there was just quite a blend of the two and so in in 1647 because they were upset about so much of spanish conquering they revolted against the spanish near a mission that had been developed by these priests in present-day leon county florida well the Appalachians basically bit off more they can chew more than they can chew so basically what happened is the Spanish got pretty upset about what the Appalachians were doing, and after the revolt, they basically forced the Appalachian men to work on projects in St. Augustine. This would include some of the churches that were built there, some of the Spanish-owned ranches that were there where they were raising livestock, including horses and what have you. And so it was basically the Appalachians were then forced into slavery, in essence, slavery in essence, to be able to do all the work that the Spanish had, because they had conquered them, they could use them for that purpose. Later on, in the 1670s, tribes that were north and west of the Appalachian, including the Chiscas, the Apacacholas, the Yamases, and other groups that basically became known as the Creeks, began raiding these Appalachian missions, and they were taking captives and using them as trade goods, and they traded them as slaves to the English in, in what is now known as the Carolinas. This is quite a turnaround, right? Because the Appalachians had basically been slaves, but they were being protected by the Spanish because they were their slaves and they were getting all the work done. But the Appalachians recognized, hey, the Spanish can't take care of us. 
And so they oftentimes would, in the middle of these raids and being taken slaves, would move out and then they would just join forces with their enemies. This was a common tactic actually in the part of the world that I'm from where some people, some Native American tribes would raid white settlements even, some of the European settlements, and the Europeans would be taken slave, and then eventually they'd be adopted in the tribe, and even later, 20, 30 years later, when it was discovered, hey, this is, this is some European settler that is now part of the Native Americans, those Europeans would prefer to stay with their Native American aggressors, at, you know, aggressors at the time, but they enjoyed their life living off the land. and. I like to point this out sometimes because I think, don't get me wrong, I don't want you to think I'm being apologetic to Native American plight. I, I think it's an understanding of history that's the most important thing here. But I also think that there's been an undue focus put on Native Americans at that time stating they were all savages. And it's just, it's just wrong. I mean, they warred just like everybody else, but they warred in response to people invading their area. Now, if they had maybe were savage more than maybe Europeans would have been expelled. I, I don't know. But what it is, is that we're here now, and I understand the history a little bit more, and I like this understanding of history, that is. So moving on into 1702, uh, just a few Spanish soldiers organized and put together 800 Apalachee, Chatot, and Temecuan warriors on a, basically a raid to destroy several of the Apalachee and Temecuan missions had, that had been raided and were ambushed by another Native American tribe. After that, there were only 300, think about this, only 300 Appalachian warriors that escaped the ambush. Now, moving on to 1702, think about how close we're getting to the what we now know as the pre-revolutionary times of our country. In 1702, the Spanish were, you know, again at this time, not only at war with tribes, but they were also at war with the English. And so at the end of this war, England, as we now know, emerged much stronger than Spain. However, the issue that happened for the Appalachian in particular, it took a tremendous toll on them because the damage had been done. And not only by the Spanish, but now by the English as well, who destroyed them as well as other Native Americans who wanted to drive the Appalachian completely out because they had bounced around from who they were dedicated to. So. It was almost as if everybody was against the Appalachian. In 1704, there's a Colonel James Moore of Carolina. He led 50 Englishmen and a thousand Creeks in an attack on the Appalachian missions. Think about this. This is where basically the Appalachians had been taken slave. They were working there, but they were being protected by the Spanish. And these, you know, thousand plus men decided to attack them. Some of the villages surrendered without even fighting, while others were just, did not, and were completely destroyed. He returned to the Carolinas with 13 Appalachians who had surrendered, and another 1,000 who were taken as slaves. In mid-1704, another large creek raid captured more missions and large numbers of Appalachians. In all of these raids, uh, missionaries and Christian Indians were tortured by the English and murdered. Sometimes they were skinned alive. And these raids became well-known, and you might easily find this, the Appalachian Massacre. Just look that up, Appalachian Massacre, Massacre, and you'll find quite a bit of information about how all that went down. So after this chain of events, 
there were only 800 Appalachian alive, and they began to head west, but in, ran into a yellow fever epidemic near Louisiana, which was in French control at that time, and this caused another considerable decrease in their population. The Appalachians that did stay behind in Florida were eventually completely displaced after the British took over control of Florida in 1763. Now, in conclusion, this has been an interesting dig to me to just, quite frankly, a Native American tribe I had never heard the name of. And I'm glad, again, that I took the time to dig into basically looking at the name of a river, which led me to this. And I'm, and I'm thankful for street signs and road signs today that give, you know, a nod to history that allow some of us to dig into it that want to dig into it. I think it's worthy of note to consider, yeah, these, this American, Native American tribe, the Appalachian, were destroyed and basically removed from the earth. However, they defeated a couple of different Spanish conquistadors. If you've never studied that history, check that out, because those guys were bad news. I mean, they were bad news. And one proof of this is they defeated the Aztecs, which were really bad news in in their own right, and the Incas, and then came up here to start destroying things here. If they were so badass to be able to destroy the Aztecs and the Incas, and then they ran into trouble with the Appalachian, that tells me something. That tells me the Appalachian were pretty bad news themselves. And some of the guerrilla tactics they utilized, think about going after the horses the way they did, and some of the other uh, run in and destroy and then back out type of guerrilla tactics. Those were kind of new tactics back for warfare. You think about American and, and British forces facing off and bowing to one another and then going to war and stuff of that nature. There's a different way that wars were fought back then. And so guerrilla tactics, which came about in our country in this history, based upon Native American methodology and, you know, some of the Germanic uh, mercenaries that were hired to come in and fight in the Revolutionary War. All those tactics were learned somewhere that we utilize in warfare today. You think about our modern-day American special forces and stuff of that nature. A lot of those tactics were originated in warfare during this time, and maybe some specific tactics actually, actually came from the Appalachian. Who knows? But with that said, I hope you've enjoyed this dig into history. Uh, I truly love learning new things about our country here in the United States of America. It makes me thankful that we have what it is that we have and very thankful that we have the tactics that we have, and whether we've developed them or other people have developed them and we use them for our, our strength and our ability to take care of ourselves. You see these discussions and, you know, there's a lot of sympathy towards people that lived here and, and I think that's worthy. But there's not a place on earth that somebody lives and resides that wasn't won by warfare at some point in time. Native American tribes, and this is an indicator of it right here, destroyed and killed one another like crazy and before European settlement came in. So it's just, it is what it is, you all. And we must acknowledge it and we must take it for what it is and, and live today in this moment that we have in the best way that we can to do everything we can to avoid killing one another as a means of obtaining things, working with one another, but at the same time, be ready to defend ourselves and our way of life when and where we can. As always with Nature Reliance School, come on, join in, let's learn together. And that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Reliance Podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. 
Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Reliance School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.